Oh, it's so good to be with you today. I really am happy to share this sermon because I think this is a message that I think we uh, I think we can grow in. I think we can. Um, I hope it's a message that will give you a uh, something to hang the book of Romans on, <clears throat> at least the first eight chapters, which is really my goal today, to give you perspective on the book of Romans. Let me read the first uh, from from the first part of first half of Romans eight today. Uh, we're going to be in Romans eight for a while. Paul writes, beginning with verse one, chapter eight. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the, on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although your body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit, who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live according to the Spirit, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, or that we may also be glorified with him. Father, we ask that you would add your blessing upon the reading of this word. We know that there's so much more that can be read, and so much more that we need to receive into our hearts. May this word today help us to think through what your servant Paul was doing 2,000 years ago. Help us to think his thoughts, think the way he thought, and the way you think. In Jesus' name, amen. So a number of years ago, in the age of newspapers, you remember those days? They weren't too long ago. Uh, It was reported that a newsstand in Times Square in New York City, I don't know if you've ever been there. I've been there, but anyway, there's this newsstand in New York City. It was reported that it it only carried, it carried like 350 newspapers 
from out of town. You know, New York City is a place filled with all kinds of people, right? They come from all over the world. They come from all over the country. And here you have this niche market, right? That whoever owned this newsstand knew there was this niche market for people who were really from other places, but they came to New York City to live, to work, some to visit. And, and people would go and, and they would buy these papers. And, and, and you, know, you know why they bought those papers? Because they wanted to know a little bit about home. They wanted to know about what was going on in their hometown. And so they would come. They didn't want you know, New Yorkers to know that they were you know, buying papers from, let's say, you know, uh, someplace in Ohio or some places in Longview, Washington or something. But what they wanted to do was still get the paper and read news from home. Um, home is a big thing in our, a big thing in our lives. It's very important to us. Uh, I'm returning to the theme of home today, hopefully in an effort to get perspective on the book of Romans. Um, but I'm returning to the theme of home because it's, it's, it, it's in, my, in my opinion, it's one of the foundational themes of the Bible. And, and I, will, I will explain that. I, from the pages of Genesis to Revelation, uh, at least on one level, the story of home is always there, always behind the scenes, sometimes right in front of us as we read the Bibles. But it's a very important theme. Now, uh, you're probably aware of this. Uh, beginning in the year, right around the early 2000s, the Catholic Church uh, developed an ad campaign uh, looking for people who used to be a part of their church. Um, they knew people were very sensitive to this. Uh, this was an ad campaign about home. And uh, they called it, and they still call it today, Catholics Come Home. Uh, that's not an advertisement for some of you who've been in the Catholic Church to go back to it. Okay? It's just not, you know? And I'm not, I, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not a Catholic basher or anything like that. It's nothing like that. I have great respect for the Catholic Church, probably more than um, most Protestants do. Nevertheless, the Catholic Church had... Um, has this ad campaign, and, and it really worked, to, worked and, and, and is still working today. But I'm going to suggest to you that home, at least from a biblical perspective and a Christian perspective, is not so much in any particular institution, but is where, where the people of God come together and are genuine and transparent and express love and care for one another. That's why Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Uh, that's a type of home, isn't it? The presence of God is a home for us. So the concept of home tugs on our hearts. Um, we all know we need it. And as you get older, more and more you know you need it. Especially if you've moved, moved around uh, many times. I myself and Christy and I have moved all over the place. We've been so many places. And I can't believe I've been here for 10 years. I'm in my 11th year. It's crazy, isn't it? Um, but as you get older, especially if you move around, home becomes this huge theme in your life. Well, uh, one of my favorite writers is Frederick Buechner. I've referred to him many times. And in his book, The Sacred Journey, he's, he, he, uh, he has this to say, which I think it relates to, uh, to home. We're going to go through like three slides for this. This is what he writes. He says, one way or another, the journey through time starts for us all. And for all of us, too. That journey is in at least one sense the same journey because what it is primarily, I think, is a journey in search. Ever felt that way? 
that your life is about searching for something. It goes on. Each must say for himself what he searches for. And there will be as many answers as there are searchers, but perhaps there are certain general answers that will do for us all. Oh, I think this is so insightful where he says this. He says, we search for self to be. I'm sure there are many who can relate to that. We search for self to be. We search for other selves to love. We search for work to do. He goes on. And since when even to one degree or another we find these things, we find also that there is still something crucial missing which we have not found. We search for that unfound thing too. You can see where I'm going to talk about home, right? There's a sense in which we need that. We search that unfound thing too, even though we do not know its name or where it is to be found. Or even, and this is a desperate part of human life, or even if it's to be found at all. There are so many people in search for something, something, and they don't even know it's ever going to be found. It's a missing piece in their lives. Uh, it's uh, tragic. I, I think we all search for something. I'm calling it home at this point. Um, I, I, my hope is that you find it. I think there are many Christians today who think they've found it, and sometimes I, I, I wonder if they really have. I know they may have found an institution. They may have found a church building. They might even find a few friends, but have they really found home? Uh, it's difficult as a Christian, especially if you're a preacher, because you're always hoping that people will find Jesus in a deep, personal way. But you don't know how to get them there. Um, you know, I can use a lot of words describe Christian theology. I can use words that, that probably most of you are not familiar with. Uh, pneumatology, eschatology, Christology, sacerdotalism, antinomianism, justification, sanctification, a couple of the more familiar ones. I can use all kinds of words to try to explain Christian theology and what the Bible has to say, but if you don't come alive in the person of Jesus Christ, and those terms just go right by us. They don't really mean anything. They don't connect with us. Um, the real issue is whether we are being led in a deep, profound search for life. And that life is really our home. Right? It's our home. Well, my prayer is that you find it. Now, I want to consider the biblical story today. I said this sermon at least potentially could be a little bit long. Uh, please stay with me. Um, the story, of com- this, 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 uh, this story of coming home begins in Genesis. Uh, you probably remember the story, how the f- our first parents ate from the tree they were not supposed to eat from. And as a result, they were in big trouble, right? Um, the uh, land was cursed, the ground was cursed, the woman was given this, must be a horrible thing when God says you will have Pain, you will, I will increase your pain in childbearing. Um, 
but, but the first thing that happens right after this disobedience, the first thing that, that happens beyond what God has to say, is uh, the, the writer in Genesis tells us this, it says in verse, verse uh, 20 of chapter 3, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. There's a great sermon right there. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Right away we see that God loves even those who would come against him, even those who would disobey him. God does this great, wonderful thing for them. Probably an animal killed for that, pointing to the crucifixion. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden. See, see we're, already, we're leaving home now. Right in the beginning, right in the beginning, we leave home. We, God sends him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed this cherubim and a, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life to guard the way home. You're not coming back this way. You're not going home to the Garden of Eden. This is what the message is here. Uh, Something else has to happen in your life and in the life of those to come through you and the woman. Home is lost. Not going back this way. Now, I'm always intrigued when I read the New Testament because every now and then you get a little picture of of the biblical story in the Old Testament, right? From the New Testament. It's always kind of pulling these little things out. And John, I just thought, I thought about this. I've got to share this with you. Uh, it's more of an Easter type thing, but I want to share this with you. Uh, John has this to say at, after, at the, right after the resurrection. Um, uh, Mary is, she's come to the tomb. And we have this encounter here. Woman, why are you weeping? Jesus said to them. They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? This is an interesting statement. I love this statement in John's Gospel. Supposing him to be the gardener. You know, right in the midst of the Easter story is a statement about Genesis, right? There's a, there's a clue, there's a kind of a, a hint here that, you know, uh, John's trying to say, hey, you know what? You're really close to being home, <laughs> right? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Supposing him to be the gardener. There's this hint that all of human life is meant to go home. And guess what? Jesus is that home. Okay, so there's another story beyond, beyond Adam uh, that I wanted to point out. And this is the story of Abraham. Uh, story of Abraham. God calls Abraham for a purpose, for a reason. Now the Lord said to Abraham, now this is in the... In the very beginning of that story, Genesis 12, beginning with verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred 
and your father's house through the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice that the beginning of the salvation story, because this is properly where it begins. God calls Abraham out. At this time, he was called Abram. He calls him out from what? From his own home. Go away from your home so that I can ultimately bring you home. What's going on? The story of Abraham is very important. Great, great promises. Promises that, uh, about blessings. Promises that we want to have. Promises that, that God gave to Abraham that, that really ultimately are going to intertwine us. We're going to be in that story. That story of Abraham is going to be our story as well as Abraham's story. He's always going to be looking for home. The book of uh, Hebrews reminds us. So I just want you to just consider this, that in the biblical story, early on, we have two great people. We have Adam and we have Abraham. They're on similar roads. One's based on disobedience. One's going to be based on obedience and promise, right? Abraham being the one of promise. Now, we can also talk of Israel if we want to. Okay, let's put that up there. We can also talk of Israel um, itself going home. I don't want to really emphasize that too much. You know why? Because that's kind of like in the book of Romans, a little bit later than where we are. Okay, he's going to talk about Israel in chapter 9 of Romans. Let me say this, let me say this, that in the book of Revelation, we have a description of home. It's the new Jerusalem. I love this description. We should be excited about about our future, right? (coughs) Excuse me. The wall was built of jasper. This is describing the city. Well, the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth um, chrysoph... I don't even know how to pronounce that. Chrysoprase. Well, anyway. The eleventh uh, jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were, t- were twelve pearls. Each of the gates were made of a single pearl. And the street of the city, and this is where everyone gets to the streets of gold, the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. We're always talking about that, right? Songs are, are made of that one, right? The golden streets. If you want to walk the golden streets of heaven, this kind of thing. But, but, that description, that description is fantastic. However, this is what I like. And I hope this is what you like. It's a little bit earlier in that chapter. Verse 3, chapter 21 of Revelation. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place the place where God lives. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. There shall be, there'll be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things that passed away. You know where home is, right? Home's going to be with God himself. You know, I can't wait to walk the streets of gold. I can't wait to see all the jewels. I can't wait to see those gates, you know, pearly gates. I don't know about you, I can't wait to see Jesus. That's what I'm going for. 
I hope that's what you're going for. Home is with Jesus Christ. Well, we are in Romans, okay? You consider that a long introduction, if you will, but it's not just an introduction. It's a preparation for our understanding of Romans. Um, now we go to Romans. I want us to take a look today at how the first eight chapters of Romans really work, how they're put together. Um, do you have that sheet? There's a white sheet. <clears throat> There's a white sheet. It looks like this, and I hope you got one. If you didn't get one, at least maybe the person you're sitting next to got one. It looks like this. And it says, and this, this is something that people who have taken my inducted studies class have, uh, have, can, can relate to. I really want you to take this, and this is for you to take home and think about it. You can put it up on your refrigerator if you want. I don't really know what you want to do with this. hope you don't put it in the circular file, but I hope you put it somewhere that you can at least think about it, right? The structural relationship of generalization in reference to the gospel. You know what generalization is? It's when you broaden things out. Um, I could talk a long time about that. Uh, the, uh, the book of Acts uses generalization, geographic generalization. So in the book of Acts, we see this statement about Jesus says to the disciples, says, look, uh, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, little, little place, in Judea, a little bit bigger place, in Samaria, bigger place, and then to the ends of the world, right? It's called generalization. It's getting bigger. Now here... We have generalization as well. And the theme of Romans, the primary theme, certainly the first eight chapters, certainly that. The theme of Romans is the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, when I was sharing this with those people up, at the, up here, the, um, up in the platform this morning, uh, someone asked me, well, what is, what is righteousness? And think of righteousness as being a word that, talks, that really is about the, someone's fondness for having a good relationship. <laughs> like Righteousness is a good word. It's the, God is righteous. God wants a relationship with you. He wants to know you. He wants you to know him. He wants you to be together. Righteousness is an attribute of God. It's a character of God that he wants you to experience because he loves you. So righteousness of God is revealed. You think about it for a second. Um, before Jesus Christ, how did the world know that God was righteous. It was challenging, right? You could hear the, the story that the Hebrews had, and you have, lot, you have many glimpses of the righteousness of God. And of course, it's talked about in, this, in the Old Testament very often. God is described as being righteous. God's described as being hesed, which means he was good and faithful and loving, filled with kindness and mercy. But you don't have the demonstration of righteousness the way that you do in the New Testament. You don't have the same level of representation. So, so what you have here is that, um, as we go along, I'm going to kind of go through an outline of the book. But notice how righteousness is revealed in the first chapter, verses 16 and 17. And then when you get to chapter 3, it's revealed even more through the work of Jesus Christ. And then when you get to chapter 8, the righteousness of God is revealed through the Spirit it keeps getting broadened out. And of course, in chapter 8, you're going to have the righteousness of God revealed in such a way that even creation, I didn't read that because we can get to that part in, in, uh, in uh, chapter 8 when I was reading it this morning, 
But it even gets to the point where creation itself is getting to experience the righteousness of God. Okay? So how does this, how does this book work? I hope that you see that the theme's proclaimed, the theme is restated, and then the theme is significantly expanded. Uh, very important because, see, we can get absolutely lost as the preacher preaches on certain texts in Romans. You know, I might preach on a sermon on 7.5 and 7.6 or something like that, and, okay, that's good for understanding that passage, but it doesn't mean that you understand the rest of the book. We're entering into chapter 8, and I thought to myself, wow, the church has to know how this book works in order to kind of have a place to, to, to put all these various messages. And, and when, they re, when they read the Bible, and they read Romans, they're able to begin to understand you know, where they are in the book. And I'm telling you that this book is about the righteousness of God being revealed, the goodness of God, God wanting a relationship with you and me. If you don't have a relationship with God, you need to have one because God has done everything, everything possible in order to establish a relationship with you. But you have to respond. Well, here's how the book goes, okay? All right, there it is. The righteousness of the God is revealed in the gospel. Essential theme of Romans, okay? Paul gives us an introduction, verses 1 through 17. And we see in, uh, uh, early on in uh, verses 1 through 6, you see that the church's purpose in light of God's answered promise. The church is a purpose. And what is it? church's purpose is to be used of God to establish the obedience of faith throughout the world. Now, the book is very interesting in terms of structural relationships because the book opens with obedience of faith. Guess what it ends with? The obedience of faith. Right? We call that inclusio in inductive studies. The obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. Faith, by nature, is obedient. Faith isn't just intellectual belief. It is a response in behavior. Right? Faith, by definition creates a response. If you don't respond favorably to God, then you don't believe him, do you? You don't trust him. The obedience of faith throughout the world. And Paul establishes this very early in the book. And then Paul gives personal greetings and plans. He says he's going to go, to, he's going to go see the Romans, the church at Rome, and, he's going, and then he's going to, but on his way to Spain and this kind of thing. Paul is uh, giving these personal plans and so forth. Okay? Uh, then he goes on. This outline is really important. And this is where the theme is first introduced. In verse 16, verses 16 and 17 of the first chapter. This is it. This is like highlights, flashing stuff here. I'm going to tell you about what God, is, God has given us as the church. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Anyone here ashamed of the gospel? Anyone here ashamed of the good news? I remember when I was a kid, I kind of like, at times in school, I kind of like didn't want to tell people I was a Christian. Hey, what would they think of me? You know? Ugh. Paul says, he's not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. You've got to believe. Belief is going to change you as a person. It's not just going to be intellectual assent. It's going to change you. The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greeks. So in other words, the whole world. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith for faith or faith to faith. The Greeks are very interesting in there. I'm not going to go into that, of course. I don't have time for that. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Don't pay any attention to that little N up there. That's just a typo. I don't know how I messed that up. Okay, it doesn't really matter. The righteous shall live by faith. Anyway, the righteousness of God is revealed. So he says that. Guess what he's going to do with it? He's going to develop that statement. He's a good writer. 
right? Ever done that? Where you say something and you think, I've got to say a lot more about this in a little bit. Okay, now I know you have taken inductive studies, now you know that I could be referring to this as particularization, but there's reasons why, it, why I think it's generalization instead. Okay, so anyway, uh, here we go. Then he gets into this really his first main argument. Here it is. Under God's wrath, the entire world before God. Okay, and so he talks about the present judgment of God that all people, you see, really all people have come, uh, come under judgment because this is the nature of humanity. To, to not thank God, to kind of re, to put them off like this, to kind of do our own thing, and God just keeps turning these people over and over and over. And then, and, and, and then because humanity is involved in this, you see in chapter 2 he gets into judging because we love to judge. We love to look at others and go, wow, they're, they're, God, they're really bad people. And Paul says, don't you dare. <laughs> don't you dare. <laughs> look at yourself. Right? Humanity's inability to judge. Oh, they're able to judge, but not the right way. So their inability to judge. And then Paul's very careful. He, he, he talks about, very specifically, he says that Jews and Gentiles are in the same position before God. And he ends, ends this uh, section in verse 20, and he, he talks, about, talks about the whole world being held accountable to God. Everyone's done. Everyone's in huge trouble, you see. Um, not a fun book at this point. Not a fun book. But check it out. He returns to his theme. And this is so important that I'm going to read all ten verses now. Um, I hope you don't have uh, turkey in the oven. I said this, I said this sermon was going to be a little, little long. I think this is really important stuff. Because I think we need to understand where we are as uh, I continue to preach through Romans. Although I will uh, preach a different sermon on Easter. And Carrie McCaddy is going to preach a sermon on Palm Sunday. It won't be from Romans, I'm sure. I doubt it. Okay? But, we'll, but I'll be returning to Romans okay, and continue to work through it. But take a look at chapter 3. And, I, and I, if you have your Bibles, open it up. Open it up. I gave you just the first couple of verses up there, but I, I want to I read through the whole thing because I want you to see how Paul is trying to reveal this righteousness of God to everyone. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested. You could also say revealed. Okay, it's demonstrated, manifested, revealed. Has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, the Old Testament did reveal the righteousness of God, just not to the degree that, that he's done so through Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God through, and most of our translations do this, through faith in Christ Jesus, or through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believed. However, as we talked about in an earlier sermon, that the, that the Greek makes it very clear that you can either translate it faith in, uh, uh, faith in Jesus Christ or the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you right now that the better translation is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ because we're talking about manifestation. We're talking about something being revealed. The righteousness of God was revealed in the law of the prophets, but I'm telling you, it was really revealed in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus loved people. He loved sinners. And he was constantly after them to have a relationship with them, and he was revealing the righteousness of God in his person. The righteousness of God is revealed in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, but it's revealed in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for those who believed it. If you didn't believe it, it's not revealed to you. It takes faith to be able to see things. 
Okay, he goes on. He goes on. I just have to, have to read through this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to receive by faith. This was to show, to demonstrate, to manifest, to make sure that you got it. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show that His righteousness... At the present time, that his right, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified, made righteous, apart from works of the law, or is God the God of Jews only? He is, not, is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So this is all about the work of God in Jesus Christ. All about Jesus Christ, what he did for us. The righteousness of God being revealed. So Paul has taken that first theme that you see in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He's taken it and said, that's the gospel of God. Now let me show you a little bit more about the gospel of God. It's bigger than that. It's bigger than just the fact that I get up on a pulpit in a pulpit and I start proclaiming it. It's bigger than that. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. It's in all of his work. It's in all the incredible things that he has done. It's his death on the cross. It's in Jesus Christ the righteousness of God has been manifested because he loves you. Because he loves you. And he loves me. The righteousness of God has been revealed. Then he gets into this third part. Models of righteousness and unrighteousness from biblical history. See why I talked about Abraham and Adam? Here we have this section about Abraham. The righteousness by faith. He had righteousness because of faith. Abraham's righteousness and the implications for his offspring. 4, 1 through 25. And then the grace in which Christians stand, our reconciliation, we have been brought into Abraham's family by faith. Because Abraham was the guy who started to trust God. And there's a righteousness that he had, and so we also have that righteousness. And then look at this. He talks about Adam. Adam and the death that Adam experienced because of his sin. Bring us from 5.12 all the way to the end of chapter 7. Chapter 7. It's the reason why I talked about the shadow of Adam. I made a reference to that a couple weeks ago. Adam brings sin and death to the world, 5.12-14. Christ brings grace and life to the world because you're going to see this pattern of contrast all the time in the book of Romans, which we're not talking about today so much. But then you have, you have Christian freedom from the sin of Adam. We get out of the sin of Adam. We're free from the sin of Adam. We're out from the shadow of Adam. But guess what? Let me get, describe for you. Let me manifest to you. Let me reveal to you the life of slavery. If we live in the shadow of Adam, if we don't know Jesus Christ, we live in that. And that's what chapter 7 is really about. That's why chapter 7 is not about the Christian life. And it's contextually inappropriate, and that's strong words. Because there are many scholars who disagree with me, but they're wrong. Be bold. That's why chapter 7 is about the life of slavery. It's about the life of someone before he comes to Jesus Christ. It's about the life in the flesh, not in Jesus Christ. Not the life in the spirit. Because contextually, we're dealing with Adam. We're dealing with Abraham, and then we're dealing with Adam, and then guess what we get to get into? 
we get to the theme expanded. Paul has this theme. The gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Then he says, let me show you a little bit more. I'm going to show you Jesus Christ. And what God sent through Jesus Christ. And then he says, I'm going to show you righteousness in a big way. I'm going to show you about righteousness through the Holy Spirit. So Romans 8, the life in Jesus Christ that all Christians share. And then I'll even put, add this to it. Even creation itself ends up getting to receive all this good news because it goes into all that stuff and the future coming of Jesus Christ. Everything's changing. The righteousness of God has been revealed in the preaching of the gospel. The righteousness of God has been revealed and is being revealed in the preaching of the gospel through Jesus' the work of Jesus Christ. We preach Jesus. And the righteousness of God is revealed in the people of God in your life and in my life so that the world could know. And that's what it raises the question. Does the world know? The world might know when I stand up and preach, but does the world know in your life? That's the question. Because you know what? They expect preachers to preach about Jesus, but they don't really expect you to live it. It's only when we live it and the Spirit of God is upon us and we love people who actually they know they don't really deserve to be loved. At least on one level. On one level, they do expect to be loved. They didn't know they deserve it because they're human, human beings, but they've blown it so much they have so many addictions. They have so many broken relationships, so many broken families, so much brokenness, brokenness, brokenness. They know on one level they don't deserve anything. And so they live a lie. And it's only when you come along and love them because the Holy Spirit is in you, they start thinking, maybe this, maybe this God thing is a real deal, right? Maybe, maybe God is alive. Why does he or why does she live a life of power? You know why that you live a life of power? It's become you've come you've it's because you've become home. You've gotten you've gone home. You've gone home. Human beings were always intended to live in God. Always. Always. That's the story, right? From Genesis, having to leave the Eden. Abraham leaving his own home in order to find his home, ultimately. When a person comes to Jesus Christ, they have to leave everything that they know. They have to take all the things that they valued. They have to take their possessions and completely reassess the value there. They have to take their families, their mother, their father, their brothers, their sisters, and they have to reassess that. They, they, some of them have to actually leave their families in order to be a Christian. Just go to China. Check that out. To be a Christian, oftentimes people throughout the history of the world, throughout the history of the church, people have had to leave what they know in order to be in the family of God, in order to come home. I want to tell you a little bit about the first, uh, first few verses of Romans 8. Just to kind of get into it for the weeks to come. Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, i.e., those I was talking about before in chapter 7, they weren't in Christ, they were in the flesh. 
For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Then he says this, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. And I can't wait to talk about that next week. Next week's verse. But let's look at verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, we don't live in chapter 7, but according to the Spirit. Now in the Greek we see, dikaioma is righteousness. It's righteousness of the law there is what it says, to namu. In order that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. The ESV adds the word requirement in order to try to help us understand it as English readers. But Paul is lifting up the law and saying the law is righteous, but it can't do it by itself. It needs the Spirit of God to come in and lift us up. Because before the Spirit, we lived in a type of slavery in the flesh. But now that we have the Spirit, we are able to live a life that is pleasing to God we live this righteousness, this kaioma, you see? Because that's what home looks like. Every family has home rules. There's all kinds of families out there. I'll never forget being in seminary and taking a course on family life. There's like four different kinds of families. I can't go into that today. But it's a really interesting study. But I'll tell you about family rules, and I can tell you about my family. In my family, when we sit down to eat dinner, at least theoretically, <laughs> the TV goes off. Why is that? Because we care about each other. We don't want to be distracted. Now, Justin has his little thing where he likes to, you know, keep pulling us to the TV, but we keep the TV off. At least we try, right? Then we can get in some battles with that little guy. He's a wonderful little boy. But we have home rules. Uh, there are things that we do. Uh, generally speaking, the person that cooks the meal is not the person who cleans up, although that does happen. Um, there are... <laughs> Chrissy, did you have a home rule that you wanted to share? <laughs> you didn't adopt that home rule. Yeah, yeah. It's not... Listen... See, see, in our family, I'm, I'm the rule, rules. I establish the rules, I'm the rule keeper, and I make sure that everyone, everyone stays on it. Chrissy just follows right behind me. No, just, no. I just totally teasing. No, no, Chris, no, it's not that way. She's way better at this than I am. I just, I just have the grace to be married to her. But every family has, has home rules, right? You have a way, a, a home culture. You have a culture in your own home. And here's the culture in the Christian family. It's called righteousness. It means that we care about you more than we do me. It means I put you first, even if I can be a jerk sometimes. I put you first. I I love you before I love myself because that's the nature of love. Love is not selfish. Love is kind. I think Paul said something about that. 1 Corinthians 13. Family life, home life, because our family life is to look 
like the church. The sad thing is that often the church doesn't look like a family. It certainly doesn't look like home. But it's supposed to. And it only can be done, it can only be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now there's so much more that can be said. I even have a nice little story. I'm going I'm 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 to skip that. But so much more can be said about the book of Romans and what Paul's trying to accomplish there. And my prayer is that you would go home and that you would experience home in this congregation. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, when we talk about home, we often don't understand it because all of our homes have issues. They all do. But Jesus, would you give us the grace to know what to know what our real home is like, our lasting forever home is like because of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon this church and upon these lives. And I pray that the home that you talk about in the scriptures and this home that you speak to us gently by the Holy Spirit would begin to create a whole different culture in our own homes on the earth. But most of all, Lord, I pray that we would find that missing something, that thing that we're really deeply searching for. I know who that person is. I know what that, I know what that home is. It's, it's the person of Jesus Christ. It's not anything we can manufacture. It's only something that can be experienced through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray, Father, that we would experience precisely that. The power of the Holy Spirit changing our hearts, changing our minds, so that we could be home and find the resting place that we really need. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.